Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. We are in our um, fifth week of a sermon series um, on really what the Bible is, um, prompted by our congregation who asked so many questions that it led to this. And today's um, scriptures are um, kind of alert you to focus in on maybe the similarities between these two. The first is from Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul went on also to Derby and to Lystra where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers and sisters in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went from town to town, they delivered to them For observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And then our gospel reading today from John. But after his brothers had gone to the festival, then Jesus also went, not publicly, but as it were in secret. And the Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was considerable complaining about him among the crowds. And while some were saying, he is a good man, others were saying, no, he is deceiving the crowd. Yet no one would speak openly about him for fear of the Jews. About the middle of the festival, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews were astonished at it, saying, how does this man have such learning when he has never been taught? Then Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Those who speak on their own seek their own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is nothing unjust in him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God today. Thanks be to God. So I wonder if God has ever spoken to you. God ever spoken to you 
take a second and just like survey your life and all of the various um, moments that like strung together make up your life. Has God ever spoken to you? Maybe you're one of those people who can answer that with an emphatic yes. Something that came to mind. Yes, I remember that time when I heard God's voice audibly. The way that God spoke to like Moses and Jesus and Paul. Or maybe just this question alone, has God ever spoken to you, gives you the EBGBs. You know what the EBGBs are? Okay. Or maybe it doesn't make you uncomfortable, but rather just leaves you kind of longing. Like, goodness, wouldn't life be so much easier? Wouldn't faith be so much easier if God did speak to me like that? If you grew up in the Christian faith, the tradition at all, maybe you, like me, were exposed to a certain kind of way that people talked about their faith and about how God spoke to them. Maybe if you grew up Catholic, maybe no one ever asked you that question because it was assumed that, that God generally spoke to and through the saints and the priests. It's why you pray, it's why you confess. And we are to pray and to listen, and through their mediation with God, know God's word and God's will. Or if you grew up Baptist, perhaps, or some tradition like Baptist, maybe you were asked this question, but it was presumed that that God would speak to you through the Bible, God's inerrant, infallible word, they might call it, And any way that God might be speaking to you that does not line word by word with scripture must not be God's voice and then not be the word of God. Or maybe you, like me, grew up in more of a a charismatic, neo-Pentecostal, non-denom tradition, big box megachurch, and you were asked this question, has God ever spoken to you? You were asked it all the time. Perhaps in a setting like that, you notice that everyone all the time seems to be steeped in that language of how God is speaking to them, how God led them to do a thing or God told them to do a thing, how, how they have almost this this different language completely when they start talking about their faith. Like, I really feel like my spirit, like my spirit is God speaking to my spirit right now and saying this, or, or I sensed God saying to me, or, or God would like this church too. That if, so much so that if, if God's voice isn't perpetually obvious, then there must be something wrong with your faith. And it, it's, it's possible that you haven't fully received God's spirit yet. So has God ever spoken to you? It's my question. It's not a bad one. 
for me to ask this. It's a legitimate question, but almost in every setting where this question is asked, at the root of it really is this question of authority. Have you ever thought about that? Has God ever spoken to you? Or how has God been speaking to you? Has it been through a saint or a priest? Has it been directly through the words of scripture pinned by the very finger of God? Has it been a direct, audible voice or a direct nudging in, in, in deep in your spirit, direct from the spirit of God? By whose authority, by what power is God's word and will made known to you or made known to all the cosmos for your, or for just your life? Which brings us to our fourth word today in our series um, on the Bible. The first was, was canon, second was scribe, the third was speak, and four is power. I counted, there are, there are five letters. Um, <laughs> by whose authority, by what power is God's word and will made known? And authority is the question at the heart of our scriptures today. If you didn't notice the connection there, did you hear them? First in John, Jesus sneaks into this like, festival. He doesn't want to be noticed, but he is noticed by the various Jewish leaders who have already heard a lot about him and what he's up to, and they try to trap him in a question about authority. They confront Jesus, teaching in the temple, and ask, how does this man have such learning when he has never been taught? In other words, who gave him this power? to do this. And Jesus answers their question of authority and he says, my teaching is not mine, but of the one who sent me. Anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. And those who speak on their own, beware, Jesus says. It's this question and conversation about power. And we hear it over again and over again and over again in Acts. As Paul and the other apostles are establishing the early church, did you hear it in Acts today? As Paul and Timothy go from town to town, they delivered to the people the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Why? So that the churches might be strengthened in faith, it says, and increase in number, that, that to deliver the decisions of these people with authority on this subject would strengthen the church, it says. There was this need to answer this question, this same question that we ask all the time today. How is God speaking and by whose authority is God speaking? Which, which brings us to our next logical piece of this puzzle, this like wordle that is the Bible. Another one of your many big questions that led to this series. So we've got the, the Hebrew scriptures, and we've got the letters of Paul we've talked about, and by the end of the first century, we've got the Gospels, where some people do. They're coming out. But how did it all get put together? How did it all get compiled into the, the book that we now read or can search online, right? We don't actually have a book in here today. Did anybody bring a Bible? I didn't. That's funny. <laughs> oh, oh, Matt normally does. <laughs> okay, he, has, he, po oh, he pointed to the car. 
Uh, yeah, how, how did it get all into this book? How did it get here? I think most Christians actually assume that by the end of the first century, most Christians actually assume that the Gospels just, you know, happened. But by the end of the first century, the New Testament would have been complete. That's what most Christians assume. And the documents were bound together by that point. Remember, we don't, like have, we don't have a printing press, so that's, that would be pretty impossible. Um, but like, not only that, it is not how it happened at all. You have to remember that during the first decades after the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament wasn't a book. It was, it was a person. It was a story of this person, Jesus Christ. His words, his life, his death, his, his resurrection were God's definitive message to humankind. Jesus never wrote a book. Jesus preached and Jesus ministered and And Jesus served and commanded his disciples to do the same. And so his disciples did do the same, drawing heavily on the Hebrew scriptures, but focusing their preaching on this central text, text, which was not a text. It was the story, the oral story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And though the only, like, new written word they had at their disposal at this moment were the letters of Paul, which had started to be circulated between the churches for the building up of the body. We learn from Paul in many occasions that he himself said, my words that are written down are not as important as the sayings of Jesus you do not have written down in front of you passed on through the oral tradition. We are going to put those as more important. It wasn't a written thing. But with with the two held together at the end of the first century, there is this growing sense that the stories of Jesus and the writings of the apostles are important for the church. But how do we go from that to, to this book? Well, here is your five-minute, you tell me later, David will tell me later whether he thinks this is right. Um, You tell me later whether this is the right five minutes, but this is my five minutes. (laughs) Um, The five-minute church history lesson that you're going to get. You ready for a whole lot of pictures of white guys with beards? You ready? Awesome. Um, So around 140 A.D., In the area that is modern-day Turkey, this wealthy man, so 140 AD, remember Jesus died or resurrected in like 29, um, 29. Um, so 140 is now like 110 years after Jesus' resurrection. In this area of modern-day Turkey, this wealthy man named Marcion crops on the scene. Marcion is going, thank you, there is Marcion. Yeah. Uh, and we're not really sure if Marcion was a bishop himself or if just his father was a bishop in this, in this growing church, but what is known is that Marcion had a whole lot of questions. He would have been incredibly welcomed here at Kingstown. Um, I would have built a sermon series around him. <laughs> and Marcion struggled with this question that nearly every Christian struggles with. How do we reconcile the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who created all things, 
and at times seems harsh and angry and jealous and even petty in the Old Testament with the God and Father of of Jesus Christ who is loving and compassionate and kind. How do we make sense of these two things? And it's likely that Marcion also was asking another question kind of wrapped up in this question, which is the question of theodicy. How do we make sense of the problem of suffering and evil in light of of this God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. Why do bad things happen to good people? What great questions, right? Like, what serious great questions? These are your kind of questions. These are the kind of questions you asked me in that Ask Me Anything series. And so the problem, though, is that Marcion got to a point where he came up with an answer to this. Marcion concluded that the God of the Old Testament who created the world and was not, was not, in fact, the God and Father of Jesus Christ. The Yahweh, Yahweh of the Old Testament was this lesser deity who created the world, yes, claimed the Jews as the chosen people, yes, and was responsible for ordering of this world and consequently also responsible for evil and suffering. But the true God was not yet known to humanity. That's what Marcion thought. And so Jesus came to reveal to us the true God. Marcion's theology, basically anti-Semitism, right? That's how it first creeps into the church. And Marcion's quest to answer these great questions, he, he becomes, in his quest, the first person to think, I'm going to assemble a book. I'm going to assemble a book of of documents resembling a New Testament, doesn't call it a New Testament, completely leaving out the Old Testament altogether because, well, they were the scriptures of those, that lesser God of Yahweh. And so Marcion's New Testament included the Gospel of Luke and and 10 of Paul's letters and even these documents. Um, Marcion reworked them and rewrote them so that any little piece that did not align with Marcion's theological viewpoint that the God of the Old Testament was this lesser God, he just got rid of it. Bless his little heretic heart. His massively redacted New Testament, it spurs a movement. Think about this. Bible, nobody thinking about writing it down. Nobody thinking about compiling it into this book until one guy decides he's going to form his own and he's going to just change it all over the place. And it starts this movement. It spurs this movement as the church begins to take more seriously the importance of determining which books were to be considered authoritative and which ones, which ones do we read and study and worship. And so following Marcion the heretic because of Marcia and the heretic, who would be completely welcome at the Kingstown Communion, <laughs> follows this string of church leaders who, knowing that Marcion's compiled New Testament and the fact that it leaves out the, the Old Testament and many of the sayings of Jesus that even mention the Old Testament, this series of church leaders begin wrestling with this thing, this compilation of documents, and what should it include? Because we can't have that so we must have something. 
So in the second century now, um, we meet a string of church leaders. And so one, for instance, and you can move to the next one. There's your string of church leaders. There, there they go. Um, string of church leaders. One, um, I'm going to graze them. One guy named Justin Martyr. He's like this philosopher at a time who wrote extensively in defense of the Christian faith. And Justin, in particular, was concerned with the fact that whatever we put in a book better be relevant to us, better be for the context of worship. So he added that to the conversation. And then um, in the second century, we get other uh, people. We get Justin Martyr's student, um, Tatian, who, who compiled the first document that included all four gospels now. And he, and he removed the redundant material, but he made one long string of gospel material instead. And then comes onto the scene Irenaeus, a bishop in uh, 170 AD, who is best known for confronting the heresies of Marcion again. And this whole thing is built around this guy who wanted to just ask a really good question. And everyone's response to that guy. By the end of the second century, we still do not have a book. 170 years after the resurrection of Jesus, we still don't have a book called the New Testament. So then we're in the third century now, and the theological work of people like Tertullian and, the, and Clement of Alexandria and Origen, all these more guys, there's another, yep, more, there they go, more guys. And Origen was the first to begin kind of listing which books are accepted, undisputed versus the ones that are disputed. And then finally we get to this guy Athanasius in the fourth century, who in his writings to, to the Christians in Alexandria, Egypt in 367, first listed the 27 New Testament books as they are in, in our form today. A little bit different order, but basically those 27. And of these books, Athanasius wrote his, this famous quote, which is the quote that leaves us often perplexed. He says, these are the springs of salvation. In order, these books, these, these 27 are the springs of salvation in order that he who is thirsty may fully refresh himself with the words contained in them. In them alone, is the doctrine of piety proclaimed, let no one add anything to them or take anything away from them. And they are marked in history in the fourth century. We have these, this first idea that this book is, is set, it's done. This canon is complete. About 30 years after that, they finally have a council it's like 397, Council of Carthage, and the New Testament canon is set. And then you notice all these guys, every single one of these, um, these you know, depictions of them, they all are holding a, what are they all holding? Scripture, they're all known for that, and you'll see them in various cathedrals and um, in, other, in other places around the world, and they always are holding um, a scroll or a book. Even the book kind of always doesn't make a whole lot of sense because um, it wasn't a book for a long time. All these men, all their opinions, a load of theological work being done as a response to one man's, yes, problematic answers to some really, really good questions. And then somebody says it's closed. And what did that do for so long? It, it forced a lot of us to stop asking really good questions right? 
But what determined if this document was accepted or disputed? And so I, I think back to that council, whatever that council was, by what authority, what power, where did those 27 books come from? I think back to it, I, I almost kind of envision it like, um, like one of those cabinet be- meetings in, in the musical ha- Hamilton, like th- these various braggarts boasting of their authority and their theological purity. But really in that room, it came down to to five main things of how they determined what went into the Bible. So these five main criteria, you'll see them on the screen. It came down to usefulness, consistency, association, acceptance, and inspiration. Some of these are really easy to understand what they mean. Um, Because of Justin Martyr and and his his influence in scripture, the writing of things down, being used by, by the church and worship, we get this word usefulness. If it's not useful to the people of God in the context of Christian worship, it did not go into the Bible. Which is an interesting thing to think about because we have a lot of questions about other gospels that have been written by other people. Um, or very particular accounts of very particular stories. Um, We don't have them in the Bible because of the contributions of someone like Justin Martyr who says if it's not useful to the context of worship. So usefulness. Um, Another one, like consistency. Uh, This one makes more sense. The message of the document, that it was consistent with the faith as it was preached in in the churches. Um, as it was taught to have been established by, by the apostles. Um, so, so anyone that seemed to massively um, um, stray from the, the consistency of theological thought was, was set aside. Association, associated in some way, right? Associated in some way, this would be the ap- um, apostolicity. Um, you might have heard that word before. Um, the associated in some way with the, that first generation of, we know that not all the apostles, they didn't write the stuff, but it's, they had to be associated in some way with that first generation of Christian leaders. Um, acceptance. This was another interesting one that you may not have thought before, like usefulness. Um, acceptance, there was huge differences in the church at this time between the church in the West and the church in the East. There were books that were recognized in the church in the West and books that were recognized in the church of the East. They were each reading um, books. I've used that word wrong. There were texts or, um, or scrolls being used in each of these places, um, testimonies of people, and they had differing beliefs on whether or not they were valid. And so it had to be at this council, you bring everybody to the table, right? It had to be accepted by both the West and the East. And so once again, we have gospels that are left out because it might have been a gospel received and accepted and widely used by the West, but not the East and vice versa. Um, And then, finally, inspiration. The early church fathers believed that the Spirit spoke through these and through the apostles This is the one that is the hardest for us to understand because it is, it's it's not explicit, right? 
It's, it's implicit. Is there bias and, 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 where, and who God speaks to? How, how does God speak? We start this conversation about, about authority and, and power, and, and then we are left to trust a room of people who, in the end, will take all of those and add to it this. And also, which ones do we believe are spirit-inspired? I don't know how that conversation went. You don't know how, the, how, how that conversation went. How are we to make sense of that? That's where it gets sticky. The people who made up that council in Carthage, who determined what 27 books would be in the New Testament, they believed that the Spirit of God was, was at work speaking in and through the lives of its authors and its scribes and its oral storytellers. By, by whose authority? By the, by the power of the Spirit of God that moves people and transforms people and inspires people and builds and gathers the church. And here's the thing, if the biblical authors, they heard God speak to them, as we know God speaks to us today, not, not talking in audible voice, but that question that we often ask in common tables, right? That question where we, where we say, where have you seen God this week? And what people have you seen God? And in, in what, in what moment, and what aha moment in your life have you seen God? Um, in, in what beautiful space, marveling at creation, have you seen God? And what... We ask that question here and we trust each other to answer it and to know that in that question, God is speaking to us. In some way that week, God spoke to us. If we believe that God speaks to us that way, and it's a whole hard thing to trust a room full of men in the fourth century, but God has not, God has always spoken to us like that. Always spoken to us by showing up to us in, in people. And in, yeah, some audible voices, sure, but in people and moments and, and safe spaces and beautiful places. And, and so for me, I don't, I don't have an issue trusting the compilation of this because I know what it's like when people, when humans begin to reflect on where they see God. And some of them saw God in this text. And I wasn't there <laughs> to see God in another text. I also think it opens us up to lean into a perspective on the Bible that says, if they saw God, if they felt God speak to them in that moment, and this is how we have the, these documents compiled, um, why is it not okay to believe that that could come full as it is with all kind of human bias and human contradictions and human, everybody's opinion coming into it because we every single day are hearing from God, are are seeing God in other people, are seeing God in the world, full of all of our junk in that too, right? Something about that makes it feel to me not as a challenge 
to the authority and the voice and the word of God. That is, but as an enhancement, knowing that if it was, if I know that life is this real now, it was, it was just real. That was just, that was just reality. And that came with all their stuff too. Knowing it came with their stuff is what gives me hope. That it's not this ethereal voice from God in heaven thing that I don't get, that I don't understand, that I don't experience every day, but it's a bunch of people just kind of wrestling with where they see God in the world and in these stories. That's good news for me. I don't know if it's good news for you. Would you pray with me? God, we uh, wrestle with uh, the fact that it's, this thing has been put together by people. I mean, it is, if any sermon ha- so far in this has been more just human-centric, it's this one. Just a group of people sitting around and talking about how they're going to debate through and give room for the other until they, were, they whittle it down to what books they think should be in this in this long-lasting text that we have now. It's, it was humans at the core of its compilation. But God, I, I believe that it's in huma- your spirit works in humanity. We know that your spirit is working with our junk, with wherever we are in our lives. We know that when we don't hear your voice audibly in our lives, it doesn't mean that you are, your spirit is not at work through us. We know that when we are desperate for the voice of God and we feel like God is distant, it doesn't mean that God is not there. And so we find hope in the fact that you meet us in our humanity, that you aren't above that. God, there are people here I know who are going through incredibly raw and, and trying times. This is a time where they need to know that in the brokenness of, of human weakness and evil and unforgiveness that you show up. And so as you showed up to those people in that room in Carthage, show up to us today. God, help us see where you are, are moving in our lives, where we can see you, God, and, and help us hear your voice, even if it's, if it's in the kind words of a friend. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Table of the Lord. There is peace at the table.